She is defiant. She is a rule breaker. She is a revolutionary because she is who she is. She's a punk. Being able to self-publish has always been an integral part of the punk and DIY movement. A zine, or a fanzine, has been the medium of choice for punks across the globe for decades. As the She's a Punk community grew, I kept running into these incredible zine makers. They were covering everything from art to sustainable farming, gender dysphoria, mixtapes. These creatives are publishing the topics that are the closest to their hearts. The topics that really aren't being written about at all, or when they are being covered, they're done through a commercial filter which would never do them justice. I knew that I wanted to dedicate an episode to zine culture because they had always been important to me. I made my first zine when I was 23 years old. It was this little collection of drawings that really didn't have a theme or reason behind them. This was not earth-shattering art here. I was just very determined to self-publish. And looking back on her now, I think it was far more about serving that desire to make a zine rather than the actual art on the inside. I made them for about 85 cents a pop and I gave them out to my friends. I even got one into a local zine library in Vancouver and then another zine library in Toronto carried one as well. I made about two more zines after that to very little fanfare, if you can believe it. Uh, but my creativity sort of found its way over to audio, over paper. But I never stopped loving zines and the folk who made them. So today, we're going to talk to the women who are the best at what they do. They're going to tell us the stories of where zines came from, where they were in the 90s, and what they mean to us now. I'm your host, Siobhan Woodrow, and this is the She's a Punk Zine episode. I'm so sorry it's taken me so long to put this zine out. And I'm so sorry that it's so late. I know that you've been waiting for it forever, even though I've never done an issue before. But this is my first zine, and I want it to be really good. And it took me a long time because, like, my cat had to have surgery, and then I got so busy when my grandmother came to town. And I feel really bad because I wanted it to be my best scene ever, and also my first scene. And all the coffee stands. Act one of our episode, The Origin of Zines. I can think of no better person to ask about this than Alex Reck. She is the zinester behind Brain Scan and the author of Stolen Sharpie Revolution. I'm in my 40s, so my interest and intersection with zines has been since the early 90s. Um, and I've had a lot of time to do a lot of cool stuff with zines. So I started reading zines in the early 90s, and I started making my own zine in 1995. My other zine that I've continued to do, Brain Scan, in 1997. So I've been doing it for like 22 years now. Um, I moved to Portland, Oregon from Salt Lake City, Utah in 1999 and became one of the founders of the Portland Zine Symposium. It's kind of like we have this cool city with zines, and we should invite people to come and see our city and explore zines. Um, I wrote a book about zines called Stolen Sharpie Revolution. The first one is out in 2002. Um, I volunteered at the Independent Publishing Resource Center here in Portland, and I've taught zines at places like the Rock and Roll Camp for Girls. You see what I'm saying here? You'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who knows more and is in deeper in zine culture than Alex Reck. Um, I've been on zine reading tours, and I've attended zine fests in the U.S. and like four other countries. I also established July as International Zine Month, which is way easier than you think it is. You just like send a thing in to Chase's book of days, and then they just put it in their calendar. <laughs> My day job is running Portland Buttonworks and Zine Distro. We mostly make uh, custom buttons for all sorts of projects, but 
I curate a zine distro, which is where I buy zines at wholesale and then resell them through on, online and at other zine fests that we go to. I'm also in a zine-themed band. <laughs> uh, we're called the Coffee Scams, and uh, we all of our songs are about zines, and all of our members are from like three different countries, so it's pretty fun. <laughs> And you've already listened to them. That was the music that you heard at the beginning of this episode was the Copy Scams. And they're so funny and they're legitimately a good band. So if you want to check them out, I'm going to post a link to them. But yes, you will be hearing the Copy Scams throughout this episode, courtesy of Alex. So let's start from the real base of this. What is a zine? So um, I'm actually going to take the, well, the short answer is like it's a small independently published magazine, kind of like a little pamphlet, but um, I could give you a broader description um, that sure. I have in my book. Yes. Uh, so in Stolen Sharpie Revolution, I describe it as pronounced like magazine without the MAGA. However, it, it is derived from fanzine and not magazine. Um, it's a physically printed self-published creation that can consist of a single sheet of paper or many fastened together, usually with staples. Zines are independently made for the love of creating and rarely make a profit. Um, they can be created by one person or a group of people. And if there's multiple people working on it, they're often called a compilation zine. Um, usually zines are photocopied, but they can be offset printed, letterpressed, mediographed, or risograph printed. They can have a print run of 100 or into the thousands, but they generally have a print run under 1,000. Um, the contents can be anything you would like from personal stories, political ideologies, music-related writing, Gardening tips, jokes, travel stories, fiction, drawing, anything you can think you can put on paper. Um, zines are made by a diverse group, uh, diverse spectrum of people throughout the world from all ages and walks of life. And people who make zines can participate in communities that celebrate the tangible written word. Um, sometimes people who make zines are called zinesters. Some people really hate that term. So that's kind of a short what a zine is and kind of also answering your question of who can make a zine. Yes, that's what I was, was going to say is that... I think, I guess, one of the one of most wonderful things about uh, zines and zine culture is how accessible they are to all sorts of different folk, right? Yeah, definitely. They're, it's a really like low threshold of being able to have a piece of paper, find a photocopier and make something. So it's like it's kind of a, a very democratic way of being able to create media. Um, I think that's why zines often get used in classrooms or events like the Rock and Roll Camp for Girls where you can let people know that like you can tell your own story. You don't have to wait for someone to come and tell you that what you're doing is interesting or your stories are funny. You can just put them on paper and then trade them and, and sell them and disperse them, disperse them out into the world. So can you describe the first zines that we are aware of that were made? Um, the first scenes are often traced back to the thirties um, for the, uh, the comic which was like one of the first science fiction fanzines, um, which they actually called it a fanzine because they were fans of science fiction. So they wrote about um, the things that we're a fan of. And it was kind of a magazine that published letters back and forth from people writing about the thing that they were into. So that's kind of what we first think of when we think of um, as some of the first scenes. Into the 70s where, where the zines really kicked in was about, you know, it was about punk and fanzines of people who are into punk. Um, but in the 60s, there was also in San Francisco, there were the diggers and there were the beat poets who also wrote their own pamphlets and broadsides and leaflets and stuff. But um, in the 70s, photocopiers became more prevalent and so it was easier to make reproductions of things. So that's kind of where the punk line of zines uh, is traced. I've actually talked to some science fiction fanzine people. They still have their own conventions and they kind of think that like the zines from the 90s are sort of divergent and we don't really exist anymore because the Internet killed us. <laughs> but... <laughs> 
but we kind of trace our lines back more to like the 70s and punk as opposed to like the sci-fi fanzines. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the The first place that the word punk was claimed to be documented was in Punk Magazine from New York, in uh, which that ran from 76 to 79. And it kind of mixed comics and rock and roll and featured like the Sex Pistols and Iggy Pop and Blondie. And it kind of served as a snapshot of the early New York punk scene in that sense. And in, and in the UK, you had Sniff and Glue, which is named after Ramon's song, which is the fanzine of their culture, too. Okay. Well, uh, before we get to the 90s, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of put my toes in the 80s for a little bit. Uh, so in 1982, both Maximum Rock and Roll and Fat Sheep 5 started. And you may know Maximum Rock and Roll was based in San Francisco. It kind of started as a punk rock radio show in the 70s, but became a fanzine in 82, founded by Tim Yohanan. Yeah. Oh, ooh. All right. That's noise. You're going to hear a lot of noise on this show tonight. This is Max from Rock and Roll. I'm Tim. And each week we present the latest in uh, tapes and records from around the world of punk rock. Um, it had op-eds and features and kind of the ubiquitous scene reports that you would read for people who would like send in the reports of their punk scenes, where they're from. So it was always a really great way um, for punks to pick it up. And you can read reviews and you can read... Um, yeah, all sorts of information for the punk, you know, and including like the ads and stuff in it. Um, so that kind of carried on into the 90s. But there was also a magazine called Fact Sheet 5. And Fact Sheet 5 was a review zine. So, you know, I remember going in the 90s and picking it up and it's like, you know, a half inch. And it's just an entire catalog, not even catalog, but like just all reviews of zines. So you could go through it and tick off the ones like, oh, that scene sounds cool. And that one sounds cool. And so you put an envelope, you get an envelope, address it to the zinester, put a dollar in it, send it off. And like most of the time you get the zines back you ordered. Um, but Fact Sheet 5 is a really great way, pre-internet way to be able to connect with other zinesters and a way to find zines. Um, so that lends into the 90s zine culture. And the 90s is kind of when I started picking up and getting into zines. Um, I lived in Salt Lake City, Utah, so it was kind of like a a little bit of an isolated area. Mm -hmm. So for me, being able to reach out and find other people who are also into punk and also into like writing their own stories was really like looking at Fact Sheet 5, finding those zines and then getting them. And it's just like this treasure trove of learning about different lives of other people. Um, um, at the same time, there is the rise of the Internet. And I think the internet was sort of a double-edged sword for zines um, and made them easier to find because you could just search for zines and then find where you need to send your $1 as opposed to putting it in an envelope and hoping someone gets back to you. But there became, started to become less zines, but I think that because people could just blog, but I think that in some ways that made zines better because if people wanted to make a zine, they really had to put in the effort to do it. You had to write the thing and you had to photocopy and then you had to distribute it. It wasn't as easy as like instantly putting a rant on the internet. So tell me about BrainScan. <laughs> BrainScan is what is called a perzine, which is short for personal zine. It means that I basically tell stories about stuff in my life. Um, I started it in 1997 and kind of the way that humans grow up, um, it's grown and changed with me over the last 22 years. Um, kind of started as some pseudo intellectual ramblings and like life observations with kind of a personal as political narrative. Um, I've written zines that are travel stories about, uh, I've written zines about falling in love and falling out of love. And um, I wrote a zine about getting an IUD. Um, I've written about getting out of and recovering from an emotionally abusive marriage. Um, I've written fiction. I've written about zines about how to travel cheaply. 
Um, my re most recent issue of Brain Scan is number 13, and it is about um, how I personally built a secular witchcraft practice um, for the past decade or so. Um, yeah, I mean, I also rely heavily on using a photocopier as like a method of artwork. I really enjoy finding clip art and when you can, you can like take things and blow them up really, really big and find the little dots um, and kind of make art by layering images over each other and like really high contrast layout. So I like to mix up words and, and images together to create kind of another way of telling a story. Okay. Now, if you're anything like me, listening to Alex talk about the different ways that she uses zines, the purposes that they serve in her life, and the opportunities that they have provided her to express herself both visually and in the written word, you're probably getting pretty inspired. I dig that, man. Me too. So what you should do is check out her book, Stolen Sharpie Revolution, because it helps people that have never made zines before make a zine. It really is the perfect resource, but I'm going to let her explain that. Well, in 2002... Um, I kept seeing the same problems with scenes, like the sides getting cut off in the photocopier, uh, people using pencil and it didn't show up with the photocopier, uh, people wondering how to assemble zines and like having problems with pagination, um, or even like, great, I've made a zine, how do I get it distributed? Um, and I kept thinking I should make a zine that has all this information in it, and then someone joked that I'd never be able to steal enough photocopies, uh, mm -hmm. so we decided to get it offset printed. And the first 2000 went in a few months, so um, people were definitely into it. Um, in 17 years, I've done five printings of it, and there's over like 26,000 copies in print. So clearly it's information people want. <laughs> yes, I would say so, absolutely. And I think it's such a wonderful resource, and that's truly what it is. It is a resource. And I, I didn't want it to be like a rigid, here's how you make a zine, and you must do it this way. Like I kind of see it as a, a jumping off point, a, like, oh, so here's some stuff I figured out. Maybe you might find it useful too um, and take it wherever you want it to go. So, you know, I, I myself really don't, I don't know, I think it's a part of the punk in me of like, I really not, I'm not a fan of authority. So uh, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to be the authority. Uh, I just, but I do enjoy the, the sort of solidarity of sharing information and Skillshare type stuff. So that's kind of what I wanted to get across, across with that. And I think that, the 1990s were kind of a heyday of zines, like pre-internet. Um, it was also the rise of the Riot Girl zines, which some people say zines became more about feelings and experiences and less about things. So shifting away from the fanzine model of writing about, you know, rock stars or whatever, whatever, like sci-fi or things that you're into, it became a bunch of people who are not afraid to speak their truth. And not everyone could be in a band to be able to tell their story, but everyone could make a zine. And so out of the Riot Girl zines came things like Jigsaw and Bikini Kill. That's not like all of the zines that were out there, but there was definitely a lot of like punk ethos and ethics and um, things that zines became about like doing DIY, like how to fix your bike, things like that led into the 90s and into the 2000s. Which brings us to act two of our episode, the 90s. I'll be speaking to China Martins from her home in Baltimore. When I asked China to interview her for this particular episode, she actually sent me a bound copy of her book, which is a compilation of her zines called The Future Generation. It was a zine that she started writing in the 90s when she was a young anarchist punk rock mom who didn't really feel like the mothers in her community had enough support. So she began to publish articles on radical parenting in an age before the internet. 
My early zines were full of typewritten antidotes from personal experience and cut-and-paste excerpts from books assembled in a complementary package that aimed to see the bigger picture, the roots of societal problems, and the tools we could use to build the future that we did want to see. I wasn't aiming for any kind of literary grandeur, but to share with others who could use this hard-to-find, subversive information. My writing was rarely edited, coming from the any-way-you-can-or-not-at-all school of writing, which people seem to respond to honestly. Others would share their own experiences and thoughts back to me in the form of a letter or a zine submission. This is China Martins. Okay, um, my name is China Martins. My zine is The Future Generation, a zine for subculture, parents, kids, friends, and others. And you made that zine for quite some time. Can you tell me about Future Generation for folks that don't know? I did. I made the first issue in 1990. Um, I'm trying to think when I did, made the last one. I'm not officially done yet, but I haven't made an issue of it for a long time. But the last issue, I think its theme was like the middle age issue. So yeah, I went, I went right up, like starting from when my daughter was like one years old into her growing up and being a teenager. For me, that was a really broad look at how to be a parent, but not just for parents. How are we gonna live, kind of? Because I feel like the early punk rock was kind of like no future. And then at a certain point, um, when I started my zine, I was 21. And around that time, I felt like also a lot of my peers were, we were looking for ways to move forward, ways to have like a record label or a farm or distro or, you know, like having a kid doing different things. How do we do this into a future for ourselves? Like it, it wasn't, it was, um, it seemed like brand new territory. It seemed like completely different. Like a lot of us weren't happy with our own childhoods or how we were raised. And so the topics in the zine were for the community. They were about anarchism. They were about city planning. They were about psychology, like was looking up in books because there was no, there was no online world. There was no website, you know, there wasn't anything like that. So whatever issues that I was thinking about, you know, if it's vegetarianism or home birth or how not to hit people when you're mad <laughs> or how do you constructively talk to others or like, why are my friends leaving me behind or, you know, like whatever the issue was. And also other people would send in letters and um, I would get interview other people. And it was very, it was a very broad, uh, and I, how the same way I'm a talk, I'm like a rambler of a talker. I feel like <laughs> That's the way my zine was. It was like very big and jam-packed with all different kinds of things. So obviously the catalyst was you being a young mom and you wanting to connect with other parents, especially in the anarcho-punk scene. But why did you find that the medium of making a zine was effective for your cause? Um, I think because it was something that I had access to. And I didn't have access to a lot of things. Now, free time, like getting babysitting or getting somebody to watch my daughter so I could write, you know, that was a struggle. But still, I had access to like, we would have friends at Kinko's who could Xerox for free. Um, it was something that I, I could write myself. It was not about anybody else accepting that or, or not accepting that. Just I think the power of reading 
like a zine or a blog or anything, when you when you read something, you enter another person's life. And it can be, if there's things that are similar to your life, and you're like, oh, me too. And you evolve your understanding of your life. And if there's things in there that are not similar to your life, things that, you know, like, let's say you never wanted to have a kid that was not your interest, but people would like reading my zine because it would make them see things in a different way. And I think that's just the sheer beauty of reading and writing. But the whole thing is that publishing is not something that is accessible to everybody. Mm -hmm. And so like zines made a broader amount of all different kinds of voices, you know, that you could be heard. That's really true. And I feel like that's kind of the major theme um, that I'm seeing and everybody that I'm speaking to is accessibility beyond anything else. It, it's accessible to you to make a zine. And then in turn, it, the zine makes information accessible to other people. Um, and I and I think that that's what's so powerful about zines and, and zine culture. Can you explain to me what the feeling was like in the 90s surrounding zine culture? I think back then it was truly more what you would call underground culture, which but it was kind of part of a DIY movement where it was like, we can make media. Like media is not something out there. You know, it's in here. It's us. It's our lives our lives are important, we can make history, we can make change. Cultural importance of that that opening up of, of being able to seize media for yourself and also maybe barriers that you had. Like for me, I think there was, uh, I was never good at spelling and grammar and I dropped out of school at 15. I don't know, always kind of going against the grain and I felt like I was very, at the same time I always wanted to be a writer and I was very protective of my voice. So I think just the fact that I could publish something that had that was misspelled, you know, seems weird, but like other people would relate to that too, because there was this like raw expression that it did not have to be perfect in order to be heard. And so, um, yeah, so I feel like it was DIY um, and, and taking that power for yourself. Yeah, that's so true. That's uh, just because it's not perfect doesn't mean it's not something that should be published. I just I want to know, what do you think now in retrospect, what is the most significant impact that zines have had on your life? So many things, but I think um, the most significant thing when I think about it is the people that I met, like Victoria Law and Ariel Gore. These are other writer mothers that were really important in my life. And then that kind of led to publishing and small press and larger books. Noemi Martinez of Hermana Resist. She publishes a zine out of South Texas. Opening my horizons and then working with other people like her and like my co-editors, Maya Williams and Alexis Pauline Gums. They were the co-editors for Revolutionary Mothering. I feel like I'm part of something bigger. Yeah, I think it, it's the people that you meet. Yeah, the community, hey? Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. So then let me ask you sort of the more like nuts and bolts of the situation. How did you produce your zines at that time? Hmm. Yeah, it's funny too. Like when I, um, how I produced it was always definitely that there was somebody at Kinko's. Somebody had a hookup or somebody knew somebody or, you know, you went to the late, late night shift and they were the people who would Xerox your zines for free. Um, how I learned how to lay out a zine, I think 
it's a little bit tricky the way it's laid out. Like I feel like usually there's somebody who shows you where you're like, I want to make a zine. Then how do you do this? And it's, um, I remember at that point I was living in San Francisco and I took a train out to Oakland. Um, I didn't really know anybody else who lived in Oakland in 1989. I can't remember her name now, but she had a zine called Afterbirth and she had been like thrown out of her lesbian collective household for being a drug addict. And so it was like this strange thing where I'm like taking a train like far away um, to like radical sex worker, problem with drugs at the moment. Um, and she's like the person who knows how to make media. And uh, Clover was there and she was just, um, Susan, that was her name. Yeah, it was very, I feel like it's almost like becoming a vampire. Like somebody was like, here, this is how you do it. But <laughs> it's, it was a very significant moment in my life because she was also just saying, you know, like, oh, you're a really great mother and you're going to do good. And like somehow, somehow being a mentor, you know, a mentor um, to me. But it was like, it was definitely, it just wasn't what later on I saw zines. A lot of zines in motherhood kind of became this middle class thing this safe middle class thing. And a lot of times I see zines these days, there'll be a lot of like art zines, but it wasn't mm. that at all. It was not safe. It was like not a safe thing. It was like this totally like way underground, um, sometimes crazy thing to make a zine. It's, it's kind of bizarre to think about that because I guess like that's just not how I grew up knowing about zines. Like it's wonderful and really interesting to me to think about the idea that zines were a, a, a radical thing to make at a point in time. Yeah, because, I mean, the number one thing you're actually basically stealing, right? You know, like, there was a whole bunch of scams at that time. Like, you would have a little bus pass, you could Xerox it, and then you could get a driver, get around for free. Like, you know, if you knew where the punks were, and then they would tell you how to do things or where you get free food. Well, I mean, zines in that kind of way were people that were Xeroxing copies for you for free, you know? Um, yeah. so it was kind of like sabotage of the workplace um, in the sense of, like, you know, people who wanted to do something that was like humane, they were working for money and they were doing everything, but also taking something um, liberating, liberating the Xeroxing, you know? <laughs> That's really, and, and did you uh, spend time with like other anarchist zine makers at that time? Yeah, yeah. Actually, the first, the, the first time I ever saw a zine library um, was in 1984, San Francisco. There was this warehouse it was called The Cave, um, and there was a zine called Processed World, and um, they were older than me. I didn't really understand what was going on, but I just saw this whole zine library of zines all over the world. And also, when I was younger, a big deal was going to the um, anarchist conferences. Like, I think the first one was in San Francisco, and there was one in Vancouver, one in Detroit. It was like a yearly thing that there was like a renewed interest in anarchism, those anarchist conferences too were really um, intense. That's cool, man. Sorry, I feel like I cut you off. Are you going to say something? <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's hard, you know, when you're like, I feel like I am 52, you know, so it's a lot of years of zine making. And then, and then when you get back in your memories and you think about things, you know, I feel like there's certain things like the Lower East Side, like the heyday of squatting or like Berlin before the wall. You know, there's just certain times, there's these little moments of where you really just see so much as possible, you know? And I think there's ups and downs. There's always ups and downs of like moments where you feel like more is possible and then times where 
you don't. But I think zines are idealistic and they're almost like that movement. Like there can be times where they just take off and the people you meet and the things, you know, the things that happen. And then there's other times where you, you can make a zine or a piece of writing and you just feel like nobody's responding at all. So you really have to go through the ups and downs, I think, to be a long-term zinester. And I think a lot of people see themselves in that way. A long-term zinester, a lifer, if you will. Which brings us to part three of our episode, how zines function currently in culture. At their core, zines offer a space for people to be heard. And that's why they've always been such a valuable tool for marginalized voices. In Act 3, we're going to be talking to Christina Long, who is the creator of Black Girls World Zine. And she talks about being a woman of color in a music scene that is typically associated with white men. Christina Zine has done incredible things. And in the five years since its launch, Black Girls World has sold an average of 500 copies per issue. Which, if you're a zine maker or just somebody who likes to buy zines, you know that that's incredible. This is Christina Long. Sure. So my name is Christina Long. And the name of my zine is Black Girls World Zine. And it's a zine that I work on with my sister, Courtney Long. Can you tell me? I hear some sirens in the background. <laughs> I know. I live, unfortunately, I'm deep in New York City. And there's <laughs> constant sirens, even at work. <laughs> we can try and wait for a couple to pass. Tell me, tell me, tell me about your zine. So, Courtney and I started Black Girls World Zine around 2014, um, and we'd always been like scene kids from like the rural suburbs of the Midwest, going to a lot of metalcore shows and metal shows and all kinds of hardcore punk shows. And we got the idea one day that things were so like fun and amazing when we went to concerts that we should try and make an effort to better document what was going on. Um, so we started more formally taking pictures and talking to the bands and just interviewing people about this community that we've been a part of for so long. And then the second layer to the content in the zine was about how we were almost always the only women of color in the entire audience of one of these concerts and sort of the all the things that kind of go around navigating the space from that perspective as well especially coming from the rural suburbs um of the midwest where uh you know racial tensions are go about a certain way that might not be the same in other parts of the country. Mm -hmm. So you live in New York now. What brought you to New York? Oh, work. I mean, I've always kind of had a dual career path thing going on or almost want to say like a dual oh. identity, shall we say. So <laughs> um, I went to business school uh, for college and then when I got out of there I went to art school for graduate school so by day I do things that are more related to my business background uh, I work at the New York Times right now doing some different things for them as well as Sotheby's auction house 
And then when I come home, and these are like really conservative spaces, right? And then when I come home, I kind of switch it up and go back to uh, documenting the metal scene and going out to events and talking to people about that kind of stuff. You know, it's kind of interesting that you say that you live a double life because I feel like so many of us uh, now that have side hustles often feel like we live a double life. You know, we have our day jobs that pay the bills and then we have our side pursuits or our artistic pursuits that we don't necessarily pay our rent with, but are they basically act like a second full-time job or at least a part-time job. Does your zine feel like that? Yes, I think it took a while to find a balance that worked for us. You know, my sister, she's based in Detroit, Michigan. I'm here in New York City. So we got this long distance thing going on as well as like trying to trying to make sure that we're managing a zine uh, that doesn't become overwhelming. I think early on, we got a lot of opportunities and offers to really expand the project in all these different ways. And and I said, no, you know, I was like, listen, I love doing this, but I'm not actually trying to live off of this because I already know it won't get me where I'm trying to go. (laughs) So I'm okay with it being, you know, a smaller, more intimate, manageable thing so that we can make sure the quality stays consistent. You know, it's kind of interesting because I think that some people would say that's, you know, it's insane. I I would love an opportunity to expand and take my zine to a place where I could maybe do it full time. But also there's another group of people out that would probably argue that print is dead. Why do you still feel like people are still buying and making zines and, and loving them so much? Sure, sure. So, um, I don't think print is dead at all. I know I went to grad school and my master's degree is in print and um, print media. And I just like have a knack for finding like these little communities that are holding on to like keeping a certain skill set alive through the centuries. And Uh, printmaking was definitely like that for me that regardless of how different media continue to emerge there's still something just intimately enjoyable about flipping through a physical book Um, another thing that I've noticed as far as uh, small press publishing goes and making zines is people when they are featured artists and writers when they are featured in a printed publication they often feel a more personal connection to um, being exposed and being taken seriously in a way that sometimes they don't feel on the internet right Um, so like last fall when we had like an open call just asking people on our Instagram to send pictures of like their most punk style punk personal style we told them we would put some of their images in our uh, zine and that the zine would be printed and at the Museum of Modern Art people came out uh, after I notified folks of who had been chosen to be in the book they came down to the museum in person to take pictures of themselves with this book saying I'm in a real book a real book people can see somewhere I am archived and documented you know so yes, 
definitely still got a place. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I certainly feel that way, but I think that we always hear that, and I think that it's really interesting to see zines and zine culture really thrive in a different way in the sort of era of the internet. And I got to ask you, why do you feel like zines are such a wonderful platform for the voices of marginalized people? Number one, it would be that it's something that we have full control over, right? We don't have to, it gives you that full autonomy and personal agency to put out the information you want to put out. I think personally for me, it kind of harkens back to classic uses of a printmaking device, right? Of we're going to do our own pamphlets and hand them out. We're going to do our own newspapers and spread the word, right? Um, and within the marginalized communities, that's a really powerful thing when we know there's no point in waiting around to find out if mainstream media will mention us. We can talk to each other now. Um, the second thing I would say is it's pretty cheap to do, right? I've always encouraged folks to not feel pressure to invest a lot of money in creating something. You can always go to your local public library, uh, hopefully in some places and still have quarters or a few dollars and just start printing stuff off. So what's one of the most interesting or maybe surprising things that you have found in the community of people that read your zine? Oh, surprising. Um, I think what surprised me the most, because it really did start from a place of just my sister and I wanting to just try and remember all the stuff that we were having fun doing. Uh, now it's kind of turned into its own kind of brand where I do get a lot of social media feedback that I hadn't anticipated where, say, say there's like an 18-year-old girl who bought one of our zines at some Brooklyn event last week. Well, now she's like in her room on a Saturday night taking selfies, posting them on Instagram and Snapchat and waving the Black Girls World uh, zine at the same time just like yeah I'm vibing with this this, this is my stuff yeah black girls world and I'm like okay that's pretty cool um, <laughs> it's something that's like now getting posted on people's bedroom walls as like something that helps validate the things that they're interested in um, yeah I never saw that come I mean, it's pretty incredible considering that you, this is sort of essentially a pet project between you and your sister to just document the fun times that you were having, but this really struck a chord with a particular community that maybe just didn't feel very represented. Right, yeah, and then, you know, like, there's this whole, you know, um, I've gone to a few events now where everyone's trading stories about, like, you know, there's usually some kind of awkward experience about being that one girl who showed up to the event and is like getting mistaken for somebody's girlfriend or somebody's sister and they're always the men are always skeptical that we actually came there for the music and are taking it seriously and all that but it's like the additional layer to that is being a black woman where oftentimes back in michigan when we would show up to an event, someone would just outright say, some big burly guy would just say, I know black people were coming to this. What are they doing here? I don't know about this. I don't know if I wanted them here, <laughs> right? And it's like, whoa, man, we just came here for the music. 
Ain't nobody trying to make any statements, right? The only yeah. thing we share in this moment is that we both wanted to see this band put, right? So... You know, it's kind of interesting that you're saying that you, you're you not trying to make any statements, but, I mean, a zine is just a bunch of statements on paper, isn't it? I suppose so. I suppose <laughs> that's how it ends up being, where, yeah, we're just like, yeah, this is something that happened to us, and then other folks call back, and they're like, yeah, that happened to me, too. So what 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 do you think is, is next for your zine? What do you anticipate? So Black Girls World was invited by the Institute of Contemporary Art in Philadelphia to run our first uh, ever punk fest and zine fair. Um, it's on September 28th in Philadelphia. And it'll be this really great opportunity to bring together punks of color along the East Coast. We're going to have about five or six bands ranging in hardcore punk to uh heavy metal and a lot of the bands are going to be female fronted bands with women of color um, and they're going to be performing at the museum in tandem with uh, this zine fair that'll be happening at the same time so I'm just hoping to like get everybody out there and have a lot of fun and just kind of enjoy you know creating that space for everyone to just express themselves so it definitely doesn't happen as often as it should so i'm thinking at this point you're probably feeling a little inspired to either make your first scene or to pick it back up because it's been a hot minute since you made your last scene and i encourage you to do so but don't take that advice from me take it from these three women i asked each of them what advice they would give to somebody who wants to start a zine for the very first time the simple answer is just go for it. The other the other thing I think that a lot of people have with any kind of art really is like just that idea that the first thing you do is not gonna be the best, but you have to do it. Like you have to get over that one thing to be able to see where your progress grows, right? So like your first scene isn't gonna be your best scene, but you can see it and you don't have to share it with everyone. You can make it and you're like, great, I made it. Now what? Okay, I'll do the next one. <laughs> Um, so just to go for it and to realize that like we're all humans and we need to have room to be able to grow and change and become ourselves, the same as with our art. Well, first of all, definitely do it. Just do it. But I did think about a little piece of wisdom that might help because I do feel like we always have our procrastinator uh, ways or a lot of people, I know I did, like my first scene, it took me a year um, kind of working on it and putting it aside before it finally came out. And so I was thinking one thing I think zine conferences are pretty great. And I think like if you um, give yourself a deadline, like, you know, I want to go, I think just generally, yeah, set yourself a deadline and give yourself like a lot of time, like, you know, you can make it. Like, I'm going to do my first issue of that zine. I don't know, maybe that would be scary to put out your first issue for a zine fair. But it was just a thought because I know for a fact that if you're going somewhere and you're supposed to have a zine, then you kind of make sure you got it. My advice lately has been just take it slow, you know, like the, when I first moved to New York and somebody heard that I had a little zine and they invited me to have a table at their event, I just showed up with myself and a, a handful of copies of my book. And when I sat down and looked at what everyone else was doing, they had all kinds of shit going on on their tables. They had decorations, they had lights, they had candles. They had 
you know, music playing. They had all kinds of things to like set up their mini store. Um, back too, they had credit card readers and PayPal and Cash App and Venmo and all. You know, they were like just little entrepreneurs. And I had no idea that that was going on around zine culture. So slowly over time, as I did more events, I would be like, okay, let me go get like a tablecloth to put on my table. Uh, you know, let me go get one of those credit card readers. But very slowly, right? Like I did not go out and buy a bunch of shit up front. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so I would just say, take it slow, no pressure. It's supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be uh, some stressful thing where you're trying to make a big mark. Just keep honestly talking about stuff that you enjoy and you should be fine. is it my dude another one in the can oh my god i loved this episode so so much uh you know this is really sort of a peek into the future of what i hope to do with she's a punk bigger things exploring bigger topics and getting to know multiple women in one episode so i hope you dig it too man because this is where i'm trying to go with this in the future big thank you to alex Reck. you can read her zine called brain scan and her book stolen sharpie revolution and also a big, big thank you to Alex's band, Coffee Scams. Uh, they're a zine theme band. <laughs> they're incredible. You've heard their tunes throughout this episode, so if you dig it, you can go find their stuff on Bandcamp. And, and you won't regret it, because it's both hilarious and very good. And then go check out China Martins. She is the author of Future Generation, Don't Leave Your Friends Behind, and Revolutionary Mothering. And of course, Christina Long, her zine, Black Girls World, which is so, so incredible. Find their work, buy their work, share it, and love it. Absolutely do. I'm going to have all of the links that you can possibly need all contained within the show notes. So go out, make your own zine, make your own media, make your own podcast, tell your story because your story is valid and it deserves to be heard. So go out and tell it. I am your host, Siobhan Woodrow. Trust your gut. <laughs>